The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Continuing the topic of equanimity, um, it feels uh, for me particularly interesting and appropriate um, to talk about this this morning since the internet connection dropped a couple times while, uh, while I was sitting. I think we got through the guided meditation before it dropped. I don't know. There might have been, it might have seemed like I stopped in the middle. I don't know. <laughs> it's hard to say. I'll have to listen to the recording later. Um, but it was, it was interesting, and I'll, I'll describe a little bit about, about um, what I noticed about uh, equanimity and non-equanimity in that, in that experience. But just a little bit of a recap to begin. Um, so we've been talking about equanimity in the context of the seven factors of awakening and, and in the instructions of how to cultivate equanimity, how to cultivate the seven factors of awakening, being mindful of them. So it's the, the instructions in the Satipatthana Sutta, the Buddha's instructions on mindfulness, and the fourth foundation of mindfulness include instructions about being aware of the seven factors of awakening. Mindfulness, the seven factors being mindfulness, investigation, energy, rapture, tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. So equanimity is the, is the last one, and it can be uh, understood as kind of the culmination of the others, that all of the others support the development and cultivation of equanimity. That's one way of understanding the seven factors of awakening. In the um, instructions in the Satipatthana Sutta on being mindful of the seven factors of awakening, the key instruction, which I've repeated, I think most of the times we've been talking about the seven factors, is to be aware of the presence or absence of the factor of awakening, then to be um, curious about how it's cultivated and how it comes to fulfillment, how it strengthens, how it develops, how it, it becomes an awakening factor, essentially. So the presence, knowing the presence of equanimity, I, I think actually all of these are how equanimity is cultivated. Being aware of the presence of equanimity, being aware of the presence of any of the factors of awakening with mindfulness. This is the experience of equanimity that's happening in the present moment. This is non-reactivity happening in the present moment. Being aware of the difference between equanimity and non-equanimity is a way of cultivating equanimity. The factor of mindfulness, the, the capacity of mindfulness to be aware of what's happening in the present moment, it's a very powerful capacity when it is um, employed in this way to be curious about what the present moment experience actually is. Not for any particular purpose of what do I need to do about it or what, what does it do for me, but what is the experience? So the experience as experience. So what is the experience of equanimity? What is equanimity? 
equanimity, um, some other words for it, which we've explored in the past few weeks. Um, mental balance, non-reactivity, acceptance of what's happening, ease with the present moment, ease with what is, non-contentiousness, not fighting with what's here, impartiality, again, that kind of balance, standing in the middle of experience, not being pushed or pulled by the experience. So in my, uh, in my experience, when the um, um, computer closed the Zoom window and just had a little circle on the screen saying connecting, there was a surge of energy. And, you know, mostly in that time, I just, like, tried to think, okay, what can I do? I tried rebooting my computer, reconnecting, all of that stuff. And finally, after... I don't know, probably three or four minutes, I decided to try connecting to a different uh, server, a different um, internet connection. And then as I rejoined the meeting and settled back into the meditation, there was about 10 minutes left in the meditation at that point. There was a lot of energy in the system. It was very activated. There was a lot going on. Um, And my initial sense was, wow. I mean, I didn't feel terribly... I mean, it wasn't like my mind was really flailing or anything, but it felt, there felt like there was some charge. And so I was like, oh, this is not equanimity, you know? So just noticing that, just kind of the assumption or kind of looking at that, this is not equanimity. But as I kept looking at it, what I noticed was that there was some energetic experience in the body that seemed separate from reactivity. So there was, it was like there was this, this surge of energy that had come from having to take action, from having to do something. And that's natural. You know, it's, it's almost like there was a little bit of adrenaline that was released that had a life and it was still kind of going. Um, and I, I noticed what, what was interesting for me was noticing at a certain point that the ener- that energy, uh, which I had assumed at first was not equit, was, was the, the indication that there was not equanimity, that there was a little bit of not equanimity there. But there, when I noticed that that energy itself was not a problem, that the energy itself was just kind of the after effect of having had to do something, then the mind actually got very happy and, and quite contented to just sit with that feeling of energy in the body. And, and it, it was clear that that energy was just kind of the after effect of having had to do something and not that it was not equanimity. So there was some non-equanimity there, but there was a confusion. There was a little bit of confusion about that energetic experience because when we are reactive, it brings energy into the body. It creates a kind of energetic experience. But there's also times energy comes into the body simply when we have to do something. But, but what, so what I was kind of noticing was a subtler, like teasing apart of what is the experience of that energy and what is the experience of the non-equanimity part of that energy. And when I could notice that the, like the, the initial assumption was that energy had to completely calm down in order for the mind to be equanimous. 
And then there was the recognition, you know, equanimity can be with activity and stillness. Equanimity and tranquility are different states of mind. And so it was an, it was an interesting kind of uh, demonstration or exploration around noticing or teasing apart the, some of the differences or some of the, the subtleties around what equanimity is and what equanimity isn't in the mind. And so this was, and as I began to recognize, as I began to, to, to touch into, oh, this, some of this is um, just the normal kind of energy in the system having had to do something. And some of it is reactivity. And as I began to notice that, the reactivity faded pretty quickly. And then there was just the energy in the body. And there was a kind of delight. It's like, oh, you know, my system took care of things. <laughs> so, so anyway, that was just a little kind of in the moment uh, story or description of noticing that, that difference. Noticing that curiosity around presence and absence of equanimity. So the recognizing the presence of equanimity is a key way to cultivate it. Recognizing the absence of equanimity, also a key way to cultivate it, because we we talked about that a couple of weeks ago. Noticing reactivity, as we notice when the um, mind is reactive, we notice um, potentially we notice that the kind of mindfulness that can recognize, oh, reactivity is happening, can step us back a little bit so that we become aware with a balance of mind, with a little bit of equanimity, that the mind has some reactivity. And so we step into a bigger container, some more spaciousness around both what's happening and our reactivity to it. And then sometimes in that container, in that bigger container, sometimes the equanimity, the equanimity doesn't re-arise, but sometimes it does. Sometimes we end up feeling that reactivity kind of fall away, as I noticed in that, in my, in my um, situation, that when I actually noticed the difference between what was happening, the energy in the system and the reactivity, as I noticed the part that was reactivity, that part diminished. And then the mind was just at ease with knowing there was energy in the system. So noticing the, the presence of equanimity, noticing the absence of equanimity, both are key ways to cultivate, um, cultivate equanimity, to strengthen its capacity in our, in our practice, in our hearts and minds. Another way that we talked about last time to cultivate equanimity is in reflecting or um, reminding ourselves of wisdom. I talked, we talked a little bit last week about re- reflecting on the impermanent, unreliable nature of experience, the uh, um, experience as conditioned as ways that we can support being able to hold something that's challenging. And the purpose, part of the purpose, one thing that equanimity is not, I I should have said this earlier, equanimity, having this balance of mind, having this uh, space of non-reactivity, equanimity is not about non-action. And so we can um, be equanimous and act and take action. And so the um, um, the 
find my way back to the thread that took me there. So, oh, I was talking about cultivating the understanding of conditionality, I think. So understanding that um, what is happening is conditioned can create some balance for us about what's happening, but it doesn't necessarily mean that we don't do something about what's happening, that we don't take action. It's, it's the equanimity creates a place, a container in which we can take action, not out of reactivity, but out of wisdom, out of compassion, out of um, understanding rather than greed or aversion. So the, the wisdom that supports equanimity um, is understanding that things are impermanent, understanding that they're unreliable and that um, they are conditioned. Another key um, reflection, which is related to the conditioned nature of experience, um, another key teaching that supports the cultivation of equanimity is the understanding of karma. Um, I think we all kind of know the word karma. It's in our everyday language, you know, but it, it, it unfortunately isn't usually used quite the way it's understood in Buddhism in our everyday language. Um, and so I'd like to describe a little bit about, about what karma is in, in terms of this reflection and how this understanding is supportive for the cultivation of equanimity. First, I'll say that um, this teaching connecting the reflection on karma to equanimity is uh, one of the key ways that the Brahma-vihara of equanimity is cultivated. The Brahma-vihara, um, the Brahma-viharas are a list of some wholesome qualities of mind that um, are cultivated as our heart begins to let go of craving and clinging. And in the teachings, they're often taught as cultivated in relationship to people, in relationship to others. And so the, um, the encouragement with metta, for example, with loving kindness, is to cultivate it for ourselves and for others and for both, for all beings, essentially. And we do that by actively wishing, um, may I be happy, may other beings be happy, may you be happy, may all beings be happy. May beings be at ease, may beings be healthy and safe. And so these, um, these thoughts in the mind are kind of aiming the mind or inclining the mind in the direction of that quality of, of loving kindness. So all four Brahma Viharas, loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity have um, kind of a relational aspect to them. Um, kindness, compassion, and sympathetic joy, kind of the relational field of how we are with our, with our fellow human beings as we go through life seeing the ups and downs of life. The connectedness that we have, the caring that we have uh, related to um, just wishing well for other beings. That's the metta. Compassion being the, um, uh, the emotion that arises when there are beings that are suffering. And we have an open heart, a non-resistance to that suffering, 
but the compassion then kind of comes with this action, this wish to act to alleviate that suffering. Sympathetic joy arises when somebody is experiencing um, things to be appreciated, joyful uh, joyful experiences. So the uh, sympathetic joy is kind of the heart that's that resonates in empathy or in sympathy when somebody else is happy. So it's a happiness that is arising in dependence on happiness. So again, very relational. The, um, the, the relationship of equanimity is that of understanding that we all get to make our own journeys. We all get to choose how we engage in the world. And that those choices that we make, how we choose to navigate our lives, is what creates or results in whether our whether we we experience happiness or unhappiness, whether we experience suffering or ease. And so this is this is the um, uh, the relational field of equanimity that we contemplate or recognize, you know, especially for people close to us in a way, you know, um, uh, I don't have children, but I can only imagine, you know, the challenge of understanding that your kids have to make their own choices. I mean, we need to uh, train and um, um, educate and give them all the skills that we can but ultimately, you know, especially as they come into adulthood, as they come into young adulthood, they have to make their own choices and they will live the consequences of those choices. And so this is essentially a, a reflection on equanimity is understanding, yes, the happiness and unhappiness of those that I love is dependent on how they choose to engage with their life. I can't make their choices for them. They make their choices for them. And so this, this leads to, it's, it's a hard, it's a hard one. It's hard for us to, uh, to land with that, but it does move us in the direction of having some balance of mind in that relationship. And it doesn't mean non-action, right? If your kid is doing something, making a choice, you may want to step in and say, that's not a skillful choice. Here are the consequences of that choice. You know, so it, again, it's not about non-action what we're talking about. So the, the, the teaching on karma, this, this understanding of beings have their choices to make. And the choices that they make is what leads to their happiness or unhappiness, their suffering or ease. So it's a complex teaching, the teaching on karma. This is, this is, um, this is a kind of a simple uh, summary of it in a way this that the choices that we make are um, directly responsible directly um, moving us towards more ease or more suffering so just a little bit a little bit more about the teaching because it is it is um, uh, there's some nuance to it there's quite a bit of nuance to this teaching on karma. So one, one teacher, um, 
one Bhikkhu Bodhi gives a very succinct definition of karma that I'm going to unpack a little bit. So his definition of karma is the capacity of our intentional actions. So our choices and intention here. Well, I'll, 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 I'll unpack it in a moment. The capacity of our intentional actions to produce an ethically appropriate result. So the uh, our actions will, um, when we act out of greed, aversion, delusion, when we act out of anger, hostility, out of wanting to hold on to things, keep things to ourselves, um, out of confusion, out of disorientation, then that will have an effect on how our lives unfold. And the understanding is that the uh, actions out of greed, aversion, delusion will tend to lead us in the direction where there will be suffering in our lives. Now, we know this at some levels. You know, when we get angry, you know, the, the consequences of that, we can actually feel that right directly in the present moment, right immediately we can feel it if we turn and actually explore that experience. What is it like to be angry in the present moment? It's painful. So right away, we can actually notice the consequences of a mind state like anger. Now, in my own experience, this was a revelation the first time I really noticed it. The first time I really brought the attention to anger and felt it, it's like, wow, I thought this was going to make the other person really unhappy, but it's painful for this being right now. So, you know, my understanding of the consequences of anger wasn't so direct initially. Um, and, you know, the idea, there was some mistaken idea somehow that making the other person angry was going to make me happy. You know, that that was, that was you know, that was part of the, the, the mistaken belief around the anger. But what happens when we make somebody else angry? They get angry at us and they want to get back at us. And so there's this kind of cycle, a perpetuating cycle that results. So this is, this is some of the um, kind of the consequences of these mind states. Greed, aversion, delusion tend to lead us in the direction of stress, of suffering, of more greed, aversion, delusion, essentially. And greed, aversion, delusion, when we experience them, is experience, are experienced in the moment as stressful, as suffering. And so the, um, the capacity of our intentional actions to produce an ethically appropriate result. Greed, aversion, delusion lead us towards the um, more greed, aversion, delusion, essentially. If we act out of non-greed, non-aversion, non-delusion, out of generosity, out of love, out of wisdom, out of compassion, that tends to lead to more generosity, love, wisdom, and compassion. Now, the understanding of this, of this um, law of karma, um, that our intentional actions, when we act out of greed, aversion, and delusion, it moves us to suffering. We act out of non-greed, non-aversion, non-delusion. It moves us in the direction more of happiness. This is understood to be kind of a, a natural law. It's not something people made up. It's 
like the law of gravity. In fact, in one sutta, the Buddha kind of points to this. He, he kind of makes an analogy of um, if you drop a big stone into the water, you know, what's going to happen to that big stone? It's going to sink because that's the nature of something weighty dropped into water. It goes to the bottom of the, of the pond. And he said, does any amount of wishing make that stone rise to the surface of the pond? He says, no, because it's not the nature of it to rise to the surface of the pond. And so the, the law of karma, this understanding of when we act out of greed, aversion, and delusion, it leads to stress, it leads to suffering, it leads to um, painful result. That is understood to be a natural law. Now, the, um, the a couple pieces here, the intention that's talked about, the, the, um, when we act out of greed, aversion, and delusion, um, it doesn't have to be that we're consciously, like in our minds saying, I'm going to act out of this anger. You know, we don't have to be mindful. We don't have to be aware that we're acting out of anger in order for acting out of anger to produce this, this result. So sometimes our intentions, our kind of what we're acting out of is buried. I think we know this too. Sometimes we, we, we speak before we really think, right? And it's like, wow, if I'd even thought about that for a second, I would not have said that. But the intention of whatever motivated that was kind of in our subconscious mind. Just because it's not consciously in our mind doesn't mean that we don't experience the effect of, of that kind of intention in our, in our, um, in our, st- our stream of experience. So the uh, intention may be conscious or subconscious, and it will be connected with some kind of motivation. And that's understood to be the karma. The karma is that kind of that impulse and the, the, the movement in that direction. That our, act, our actions, so our intentional actions, that's the karma. Then that they produce a particular result that's um, the result of karma. The Pali, uh, Kama is the Pali for karma, Kama. And then uh, Kama Vipaka is the result of karma. And so this is the, the result of that intention. So um, when we act out of unskillful motivations, it tends to move us towards suffering. When we act out of skillful motivations, it tends to move us towards happiness. But the results of that karma, um, it's, this is is an area of some of the subtlety. There's a couple of pieces to unpack here. Hopefully I can do this in the next uh, 10 minutes or so and leave a little time for question. Um, The um, the results of that action don't necessarily produce a result immediately. So karma can be kind of like a seed. This is another analogy that is, is used. You know, the seed, a seed contains a capacity for a certain result. 
but it doesn't necessarily produce the result until the conditions are, are right. So the seed won't, won't grow into its appropriate plant until it's given soil, until it's given nourishment, until it's given water, and then it will sprout, then it will grow. And so sometimes that seed might be planted in very fertile soil, given a lot of nourishment, and grow very quickly. At other times it might land someplace at a time when it's very dry and take some time. Maybe it gets eaten by a bird, you know, then gets landed out in its bird poo in a nice little package of nourishment and then, and then gets some moisture and then sprouts. So it, it, it can take some time to, to, to get the conditions for that result to happen. But the seed contains the capacity. So the understanding of the results, we may not experience the results of an unhelpful, an unskillful action immediately, and and the you know the the, the it may happen it may happen immediately, and if we are I think one of the the ways mindfulness begins to work this is just something that the, a, way, a way to frame this that just happened just occurred in my mind at this moment, one of the reasons mindfulness works is because it makes the, uh, the result of karma, the result of unwholesome mind states, apparent much more quickly. Because we feel directly in the moment the experience of greed, the experience of aversion, the experience of delusion, having a quality that feels like stress. And so the, the, the results of, of, of acting out of greed, aversion, and delusion are much more obvious much more quickly. So there's faster learning that happens. We don't have to wait for years <laughs> to learn, oh, yeah, when I acted out of that anger two months ago, this is the result. You know, this person being really mad at me and, and doing something in return. You know, so, th so the results of, of karma are come more quickly and there's learning. The learning happens more quickly. So that's one piece of, of karma that the results don't necessarily happen immediately. They can happen. They can happen immediately. They might happen tomorrow. They might happen next week, next year. And the teaching also is that they could happen, um, in future lives. So the teaching of karma um, also speaks to the possibility of, of where we land in, in future lives. So that's one piece of uh, kind of the, the teaching on karma. It's not necessarily, you know, you turn on the light and the light goes on, you know, it's not, it's not necessarily immediate consequence. The second piece of um, of the, the kind of subtlety of the teaching of karma is that the consequences of the results of our intentional actions, they produce an ethically congruent, maybe that's a better word than appropriate. Actually, I, I think that feels more, more resonant for me that the, um, the results of karma are congruent with the intention behind the action. And so if we're acting out of anger, the results are congruent with that acting out of anger. If we're acting out of peace and 
uh, kindness, the results are congruent with acting out of peace and kindness. And again, not necessarily immediately. Um, but the results, while being congruent, are not what would be called deterministic. So, um, you know, the, the deterministic um, model at the time of the Buddha said something like, um, you know, if you, if you kill somebody, um, then the consequences of that will be that you'll go to hell in a future life. And so, you know, that, that's kind of the, you know, that's a, that's a kind of a deterministic model. If you kill somebody, you will go to hell. This is a very simplistic example. But the Buddha, when asked that kind of question, said, no, you know, that's not necessarily the case, that, that the effect of karma, the effect uh, of our actions, the result of our actions, is dependent on a lot of conditions. It's dependent on the kind of the field that the um, the karma lands in, and it's dependent on how we are. So it's it's dependent on everything that we've done to this point. That being the field the karma lands in, the conditions of our hearts and minds at the moment when we do that action. Um, and then it also depends on uh, the results also depend on how we are when the results come to fruition. What is the state of our mind when the results come to, come to fruition? So the, there's an analogy, another analogy. I love that the Buddha gave so many analogies about karma because it's a complica complicated teaching and analogies kind of make things a little simpler. Um, or, or kind of may, may resonate for us. He gave an analogy of dropping a teaspoon of salt into a glass of water. And he said, when you drop a teaspoon of salt into a glass of water, it becomes undrinkable. You know, it, it's, it's way too salty. You'll just spit it out. It's very unpleasant. And so a small amount of water and a teaspoon of salt, big effect big effect of that salt in the water. He said, but if you take that same teaspoon of salt and dump it into a very large, pure pond of water, and then take a cup of water out of that pond, you won't taste the salt. It'll be a minimal impact on that experience of drinking the water. Because there's, it's diluted. It's got a much bigger field in which it's it's landing a much bigger like the the, the 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 purity of the water kind of absorbs the minimal impurity of the salt so it doesn't affect the flavor when you take a glass of water out of the pond this is this is also the understanding with karma of um an action the buddha says that for some for some people a particular action may result in a huge impact on their lives, a huge effect, a, a huge um, um, suffering. And for others, it may barely be felt. Just the littlest of ripples. So this is what 
he means what what is meant by karma not being deterministic. The result is not lockstep. The result may depend on the result depends on kind of how our minds are in that moment and the the kind of the analogy of the water the kind of the clarity the the um purity of the water being an analogy for our minds if we dump oh if we dump a teaspoon of water into a very polluted pond it's still going to to be not good to drink and so the the um um the mind if we have cultivated a lot of wholesome qualities in the mind then if we do something unskillful it has a much smaller uh, overall effect in the mind but if we do uh, something unskillful and we've been doing a lot of unskillful things in the past it's like it's like an additive or a multiplicative effect the the experience becomes a lot more amplified potentially so the 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 buddhist teaching on karma differed from some of the teachings on causes and conditions at the, at, at his time in that both the the kind of the the indeterministic time you know that it will that it may take time for um the karma to unfold and in this indeterministic kind of result and yet the buddha does say that there will be some ripples from that karma may be barely perceptible but there will be an effect so you know doing something unskillful will have an effect it just may be very mitigated by prior wholesome actions and so we can we can kind of take um delight in cultivating these wholesome qualities of mind in that it um, creates the conditions for more and more wholesomeness and when we do act unskillfully potentially to not have uh, as much um as much of a uh, ripple following that so the reflection on karma that cultivates equanimity is to recollect that the the, the language in the suttas is something like I am the owner of my karma. I'll, I'll, I'll say the whole phrase. I'm the owner of my karma. I'm heir to my karma. I need to look at it. I'm born of my karma. I'm related to my karma. I abide supported by my karma. Whatever karma I shall do, for good or for ill, skillful or unskillful, whatever karma I shall do, skillful or unskillful, of that I shall be the heir. So this um, this reflection in terms of what's happening right now, I mean, it, it both supports the, I think the, the reflection on karma both supports our movement towards wishing to engage in more wholesome actions but also to understand that what's arising right now has had been, has been um, shaped by my past actions, 
shaped by the past. Now, the, the point here isn't to beat ourselves up for, for our past actions, but to understand that, oh, yes, okay, what's happening now? It's, it's a lawful result of something that may have happened before. To me, it's, it sounds paradoxical in a way that this would lead to equanimity. But try it. <laughs> try it and see what happens as you reflect. And, and for me, the, the, the reflection of right, this is, of course, this is arising right now. The, the, the experience of seeing, you know, self-hatred arising, depression arising, when I use this kind of reflection of, this is the consequence, you know, th- of course this is happening. This is happening because I've practiced depression for a lot of, of my previous life. Of course this is arising. And so that, that it sounds counterintuitive. It sounds like we would just immediately jump on ourselves and say, well, I shouldn't be, have done that, you know, but, but when we are doing this with the kind of balance of mind to, to recognize, oh, this is arising right now. It's arising independence on prior conditions. And when we can see that doing that with mindfulness creates the conditions for some ease in the moment, there is a balance of mind that, that comes with that. It's, it sounds paradoxical. It sounds a little bit odd to reflect on how this teaching of karma, this teaching of how prior actions have led to what's happening right now. So I just got a, uh, a chat. Somebody um, said, we play the cards we are dealt. Yes, so that's a, that's a kind of a, a way to, to frame this. Um, we reap what we sow, another, another kind of... Um, uh, everyday aphorism that reflects this teaching and we reap what we sow it's like we don't have to just like go in down in the dumps about that it's like we can use what we what we sow and and have some understanding about you know the past conditions and that cultivating new conditions now leads to new results in the future and so that that begins to support the cultivation of equanimity internally for ourselves. And, and again, I think, you know, this, the teaching on the reflection of karma, very supportive, very helpful again with respect to our loved ones. Remembering the actions that people, what's happening for people, the struggles, whatever's happening, the, the happiness or unhappiness of our loved ones is dependent on their actions not on our wishes. So that's a, that's a, that's a framing of um, the reflection on karma that's often offered in the reflection on equanimity. I wish you happiness, but your happiness depends upon your actions, not upon my wishes for you. So the um, uh, that again, it sounds potentially counterintuitive that that would lead to some balance of mind, some, some ability to hold the, the struggles of others. But try it. It's, it's quite amazingly supportive. Um, and it, surprisingly sometimes, you know, surprisingly that, oh yeah, of course, the, the, the of course, or the, this is nature, this is nature kind of recollection. This is nature. 